Anyway, what, what wonderful time we've had this morning so far. I've just loved the songs. I got up and just wanted to pray immediately because, you know, what beautiful truths those are, that we are forever His, and that it's only because of His grace that we, we know Him. I want to talk this morning about a passage in John 21, a passage in John 21, 15 to 19. I got Matt's permission first to speak about John. But I thought because it's in verse tw- uh, chapter 21, it's going to be a while before he, he gets there. He's promising he's not going to do a Martin Lloyd-Jones, right, and take 10 years to get there. But um, it's worth through, digging through every detail of the Gospel of John because it's a beautiful, beautiful book. Um, so we're looking at John 21. And I want to start off, first of all, by just thinking through uh, where our world is at in terms of being reached where our world is at in terms of being reached uh, before we get to the passage. In our world, if we look at it in terms of people groups, 42% of the world's people groups are yet to hear the gospel, are yet to have anyone who knows the gospel live among them. 41% of the world's population is entirely unreached. And that's something that obviously grates at my heart and something that I want to bring before you But sometimes we can think, hey, let's get some warm bodies, let's dig up some warm bodies and we'll just get out there and get this job done. Okay, well, we can think like that. And if we follow the logic, and I've heard these terms, well, what what kind of people do we want to do that kind of job? Well, maybe they need to be a good language learner. No. No. The last thing you want is someone with the wrong things in their heart, being a good language learner. Why? Because out of the abundance of the heart, what? The mouth speaks. That's not a qualification. And actually, you'll find that the slower language learners catch up in a few years' time. It's completely irrelevant. Maybe you need a strong personality to be a missionary. Please be careful with that. There are lots of people with strong personalities, but I don't want to work with them. Why? Because what's behind that? What is putting the steel in their spine? Is it Christ? Or is it their idea of what they want? How about flexibility? Flexibility can be great when it comes to eating and where to sleep and things like that. But not morally. Never morally. Never just going along with the new culture because it's culturally appropriate, but contrary to Scripture. Or how about being driven? Well, driven by what? I would say I went to the field driven and that every year has broken my drivenness. (laughs) Why? Because nothing happens according to my schedule. Nothing happens according to my plan. Is that what God wants from us? When we think through those things, and I often hear these things, what's absent? What's absent from that thinking? It's something big. God. God is absent from that thinking when we think in, in, in those terms. Whose plan is it to save sinners? Is it mine? It's not. It's God's. Whose power is it that draws people to Christ and transforms their lives? Is it mine? Is it my method? It's not. It's God's. Who assigns his tasks to his children? It's not Simon. It's God. God is the one that does these things. So what does God require of us, if that's the case? 
Well, yes, we're told that we're to pray, that he would send workers out into his harvest field. He only works through people to bring people to the truth of the gospel. So we're told to pray. We obey if he's talking to us. We do whatever he says if personally God is saying to you, this is your problem now. Walk in this, we obey. But one of the passages that's gripped my heart this year is this particular passage in John, which is asking me, what am I to be? What am I to be? And Jesus clearly brings this out as he's dealing with his broken man. His broken man, Peter, and recommissioning him. He brings three uh, God-wrought character traits out that are much more useful than the things I mentioned before. And they're not just for missionaries. They're for all of us. You know I'm going to talk about missions. But they're for you too. Let's have a look there. In John chapter 21, starting at verse 15, just a beautiful, well-known passage. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He, Jesus, said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. He said this to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. What we're going to see in this wonderful passage is that the servants God is seeking to shape and use, be that here or on the mission field, are A, people who feel their fragility, B, people who are focused on the flock, and C, people who are first and foremost followers of Jesus Christ. The first point I want us to look at is the fact that we need to be people who feel our fragility. Feel our fragility. We all know Peter had a problem, right? Peter had a problem. And I want you to see that his greatest strength was his greatest problem. His greatest strength was his greatest weakness. He would have made a great secular leader. He was self-assured, intelligent, driven, proactive, courageous... And often the first one to say what everyone else was thinking. And this is what we see right up to his denial of Jesus Christ. This is the Peter that we came to know in the Gospels. Let's have a look. I want you to see this over in Matthew 26. We'll sort of camp there for a little while. Matthew 26, verses 30 through 35. Verse 30. And when they had sung a hymn, 
They went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered, answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. You can imagine that's the case. Now, these are not just words. These are not just words. Peter had every intention of never denying Christ. You look further down the page in verse 47, you'll see that a great crowd came. And we see that the, the, they were made up of Roman soldiers and security officers. That's what John adds to it um, in his uh, gospel. Roman soldiers and security officers. So a great crowd comes, professional soldiers, professional fighters, and they're carrying swords and clubs. And does Peter run away? What does Peter do? He gets out his little sword <laughs> and gets out in front and says, Who's first? This was not a coward. This was not a coward. I think I would have been running for the hills. Um, later on, we look further down in verse 56, and we see all the, all the disciples fled, all of them. But in a couple of verses down, we see that Peter is following along from behind, following Christ along from behind. We know from John's gospel that John was there with him. And he goes right into the courtyard of the high priest and sits down. He desperately did not want to deny Christ. He was walking the talk. But his natural courage had taken him as far as it would. And you know uh, what happens after that. When the pressure hit, Peter emphatically and repeatedly denies that he is Christ's disciple and denies that he even knows him. This is This is powerful. This was a massive lesson into the future in Peter's life. And when you know God's ways, you know that this was purposed to take place. Purposed to take place. This was a lesson that Christ knew he needed. Look over with me. Flip over to Luke 22. I want you to see this. Verse 31 to 34. Luke 31. Uh, sorry, Luke 22. Verses 31 to 34. Are we allowed to have a least favorite verse in Scripture? You'll see what I mean. Jesus says to Peter, Simon, Simon. That's why I don't like it. <laughs> no. I have the right hermeneutics. I knew who he was talking to. <laughs> Simon, Simon, behold... Satan demanded to have you, plural, that's the disciples, that he might sift you, plural, again, like wheat. But I have prayed for you, singular, that's Peter, that your faith may not fail. And when you, Peter, singular, have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. So the double use of his name, his old name, uh, brings an ominous, ominous sense to what's about to come. 
let alone that Jesus said, Satan himself has demanded to sift you. And what's worse coming after that is what? If, if Jesus said to me, Satan has demanded to sift you, my answer would be, you said no, right? He said no. But permission had been granted. Let, let that uh, drill into your hearts for a bit. Permission had been granted. Satan was going to violently shake the disciples to sift them. Jesus knew exactly what would happen to Peter and how he would buckle under that, yet he gave permission for it to happen. In theological terms, I know you know the terms, we would say that this was ordained to happen because God knew that Peter needed it. God knew that Peter needed it. And Jesus was going to get right into Peter's situation and make sure he never forgot this lesson so that what? So that he would know God's grace. And so that God would be the only one glorified through his life, through his ministry. Very important. Don't miss though here uh, how comforting Jesus' words are to Peter. But I have prayed for you, Peter, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Of course, again, the, the I there is emphatic. I, the Lord of the universe, have prayed for you, Peter. This is beautiful. And when you have turned again, meaning it will happen, you have ministry, Peter. You have ministry. Uh, this, is, this is really important. And for Peter, you've got to see this. This was good. This was for his good and for our good. Um, very important. Look back at our passage now that we've kind of got that scriptural context. John chapter 21. And how Jesus deals with him. And the first thing we need to see there is that Jesus doesn't let him go. Have you, I know you have, failed someone? I certainly have. I, I've had good practice at it. <laughs> and you seek forgiveness. And they give forgiveness but then keep talking about it. Have you had that? And you're like, your heart's on fire because I'll just stop now, please. Think of Peter here. Think of Peter here. Was he grieved that he denied Christ? Remember him going out and just weeping his heart out, crying his heart out. Think of what that meant to him, that he had denied his beloved saviour, his friend, the one he looked up to. He was already in pain. And yet, Jesus had to drill. He had to drill. I guess for all of us, our, our flesh runs deep. You know, and we need that drilling from our Lord. Uh, this is important. Um, as we come there first, uh, he, he drills by reminding him of his superiority complex. Do you love me more than these? You remember his words? Implicit in that what? You don't, do you, Peter? You don't, do you, Peter? He asks again and again, do you love me? And I believe that the use of the words agape and phileo there, there is, uh, there is significance in using that, but I'm not going to touch on that today. I'm leaving meat on the bone for my dear brother uh, to, to look at um, next year. Um. <laughs> but you know what is explicit here? Is how much it hurt that he asked him three times. 
how much it hurt that he asked him three times and he probed and he probed and it grieved Peter's heart. It deeply hurt him. Do you love me? Do you love me? And this, of course, reminded him, you failed me how many times, Peter? Three times. Think about this. Jesus is intentionally hurting his heart. My dear friends, my brothers and sisters in Christ, Jesus never hurts his children without a very good reason. He never hurts his children without a very good reason. And one of the most frequent reasons for the pain that we go through is because we are proud and self-reliant. We are proud and self-reliant. It is a filthy disease to be proud and self-reliant. And I can tell you that's the case in my life. Why God has brought pain and trials and difficulties so that I won't rely on me, so I won't think more highly of myself than I ought. And you know the weird thing about thinking of ourselves that way and relying on our own strength is that God sees how deeply flawed we are. God sees how frail we are, how fragile we are. And he wants us to see that. He wants us to see that so that we will know the depths of his grace and the depths of his love, and that we will draw on his strength for the life that he's called us to. When we trust in ourselves and we think it's all about us, we will not. We won't know his grace, we won't know the depths of his love, and we won't rely on him. We'll think it's about us. You may remember another apostle uh, went through a similar thing, Paul. We see it in the first chapter of 2 Corinthians. I'll just... Uh, speak to you about it rather than turning there. They were under such desperate persecution in, that, uh, in, in Asia that Paul could say, I, I despaired of life itself. Now think of what it would take Paul to say that. You've, you've seen the list, right, of what he went through. And yet he would say, it was so intense that I despaired of life itself. And yet we see God's plan in that down in verse 9, but that was to make us rely, what? Not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. We see it also in chapter 12. There are many theories about chapter 12 and the thorn in the flesh. I would tend to relate it to chapter 1 and the struggle that they were under there and the immense pressure and the, the, the servant of Satan being a nasty false teacher who was at them, a nasty persecutor of the church who was at them and at them and at them until Paul cries out three times, please take him away. And what, is, what does God say? What does Christ say? No. <laughs> no. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul embraces this and says, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest on me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is where the Lord wants his servants to be knowing our fragility, knowing our weakness before him. Remarking on John 21, John, uh, Don Carson says, when close uh, comparisons are made with Acts 20, 28 and 1 Peter 4, 
1 to 4, they're both speaking of God's shepherds, it becomes clear that each shepherd of the flock of God, of Jesus' sheep, of the church of God, is to mirror both authority, that's important, and a certain brokenness that is utterly exemplary. Brokenness. Knowing who we are before God. I think that as a young church leader and even as a, an inexperienced missionary going off to Indonesia, I somehow had the feeling that I'd grow in confidence. Grow in confidence as I experienced ministry. But, but I'd have to confess that quite the opposite has happened. Quite the opposite has happened. It's been more than 20 years since I was first made an elder and 15 years since we moved to Indonesia. And I've got to tell you that every year has robbed me more of my self-confidence. And even in my confidence as myself, in myself as a person, any sense of worth, worthiness that I have before God. What would our world say to hearing that? Oh, you know, he needs therapy. <laughs> Knowing Christ, what do we say about that? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. God and his plan and his glory are everything. And you and I, you know what we get to be? We get to be plastic pipes. <laughs> little plastic pipes. Little, little tubes through which God pours his blessing. What's the worth in the pipe? If the water stays in the pipe too long, it tastes of plastic. The worth is what flows through us. The grace of the Lord Jesus to his church, to those he loves, to this world. This is wonderful blessing that we get to have. Hudson Taylor, you've probably heard of him, a famous missionary. If you haven't, please read his biography. Um, little guy. He went to Melbourne one year. Great place to go to. And um, he, was, he was getting introduced to speak. And someone gave a big flowery, you know, talk about this great man, uh, Hudson Taylor, before he got up and he got up and he, he was probably ashamed <laughs> that someone would say those things. He said, I am the small servant of an illustrious master. The small servant of an illustrious master. That's so true. And we see similar things. Uh, you remember the cult of personality in, in 1 Corinthians 3? It's such a wicked thing, the cult of personality. I follow this, I follow that. And we could probably even think about that in, in our own thinking sometimes of those teachers that we probably look up to too much before God. And Paul's answer is, what is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants. Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Don't put your faith in men. Don't put your faith in yourself. Don't do it. The very best of us, God's servants, are frail and we're fallible, and we're replaceable. God is the great one. God is the only one. This is important for us to get. Now this passage is obviously talking about shepherds and missionaries, but let me ask you, is God's plan for you any different? God's plan for how you see yourself? Is it any different? 
Are your decisions in life about what mission, ministries you'll be involved in based on what you can do physically? Based on what you think you can do? Oh, I could never share the gospel. I'm not an extrovert. I could never uh, give. I don't have enough. I could never sacrifice and help out with practical things around the church. Let me ask you, why is the standard different? God seeks that all of us don't serve based on who we are, but serve based on God's grace to us. Serve based on his power within us. And you know the funny thing? Your very weakness, as God uses your frail life, is what gives God the glory. As people look at you and go, that's a simple guy. And yet they can see that you've been with Jesus Christ. Well, the next aspect we need to look at is that the servants God seeks to use are focused on the flock. Focused on the flock. When we see Peter's commission, it's probably better to see it as the final installment, the final installment rather than the definitive one. And this occurrence of Jesus being commissioned or recommissioned is very similar to his first call. Very similar to the call we see in Luke 5. And I would go as far as to say... Jesus intended Peter to be reminded of it. Um, do you know how certain smells or songs or even weather can take you back 20, 30 years, if you're that old, um, to something that happened a long time ago? I, I still, if I smell epoxy resin now, it carts me back to working on a surfboard in, in my shed in Eastbourne. <laughs> Um, and smelling the epoxy resin, I can even remember the song I was listening to, and it happened to be Split Ends, of course, as an 11-year-old in 1980-something. That's something that God's put into us, right? This is really interesting here. In our passage, we see the disciples were fishing all night, right? Or fishing all night. They caught nothing. And then Jesus calls out from the beach, throw the net out the other side. They throw it out and they get more fish than they could have dreamed of, of getting more than they could even deal with. Um, Now think with me to Peter's first call. Peter's first call. They'd been up all night, right? They'd been fishing all night. They'd caught nothing. And then after Jesus teaches, he says, throw the net out again. And they're like, (laughs) they throw the net out again and more fish than they could bring in. Think of Peter's heart at that time. In in chapter 21, he's ashamed, right? In in Luke 5, go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. Just being close to Christ, hearing him, seeing what he did, brings shame in his heart before God. This is important. Christ doubles down, doubles down on this. You remember his first calling? Come and I will make, or follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Fishers of men. This is important. This is basic to Peter, even at the start of his ministry there. To make him a fisher of men. This is basic to us as Christians. Being evangelists, being people who share the truth with a dying world. It's Peter who writes by the Spirit so clearly about fishing for men in his uh, epistle. In First uh, Peter 3.15, he says, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, 
Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. This is in a time where people could be interrogated. And yet, this is fantastic input for us as Christians that, that we would seek these things in our own life too. That we first of all have our hearts set on honoring God. This, this really helps me. Because I think in those times when my heart is set on pleasing people, I don't, I don't open my mouth. I don't want them to think badly. But when I set apart Christ as Lord in my heart and say he's the one I need to please, well, that changes my attitude. Very important. We think that. And you can see the persecution coming. You can feel the persecution happening in our country right now. We need to set him apart. In our hearts as Lord, set our hearts on honoring him. This is important. Secondly, having a clear idea yourself, having it settled in your heart what your testimony of salvation is. That you can share that with other people. What it means to hope in Christ. What it means to have been a sinner and lost before God. And yet having Christ pay for your sin. And that you put your faith in him, you turn from your sin, you come to him and you're fully forgiven. This is crucial that we have that set in our hearts, set in our minds, so that when we get the chance to talk, we actually can talk. Very important. And lastly, maybe using now language, don't be a jerk. <laughs> don't think that by winning an argument, you're going to win someone to Christ. This is important. Share the clear gospel. If I could, I told you I was going to speak about missions. In the missions context, these things take time. These things take time so that the message can be understood. First of all, you actually need to know the language that people uh, speak when you're going somewhere where people don't know English. Uh, very important to know their language and not just enough language so that you can memorize a gospel presentation. What if they had questions? What if you have opponents of the gospel there that want to debate? You need to be able to clearly interact with them, clearly speak, so you need to take the time to actually learn the language. Very important. You need to learn the culture. That means understanding how people tick. Understanding how people tick, not so that we can massage the message, not at all, but so that we know how to point the message. You'll see through the book of Acts, how when the gospel is presented, it starts from wherever the people already understand. So if they're talking to Jews, they will immediately link in with, uh, with the Messiah and, and call it, calling God the God of our ancestors, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and so on. If they start with pagans, where do they start? Creation, yeah. Very important that we start where people are, know what they know. We had fun a few weeks back. Um, Matthew the extrovert. Um, they met and Lisa, they blessed us. They came, to, came over to uh, uh, Alan and Pat's wedding. And Matt went to a jiu-jitsu, um, uh, what do you call it, academy? Academy there. And made some friends and he's still in contact with them on, uh, on Facebook. And one of them shared just a few weeks back that he, he was really feeling like he'd let everybody down, that he'd fallen into sin and and that kind of thing. And what a wonderful opportunity when someone shares that. And it was neat for me as someone who lives in that town, he's from Monado, to be able to say, actually, he thinks he's a Christian. But he's probably not. 
And what he thinks is, I can make up for this. I can fix this. I can do this if I do this and this and this. Then that'll make it right. And knowing that, we, we thought, well, let's share the gospel with him. And so it was exciting just to say to him, you can't fix this. You can't fix this. You can't fix yourself up. You must come to Christ who died for our sins. Come to him for forgiveness and your sins are dealt with. You can't deal with this. I don't know what his reply was. I just saw emojis with tears and praying hands, but it'd be great if I got to meet him (laughs) uh, at some point and see. But the point is, we need to know what people are thinking before we share. Um, the gospel in, in the mission sense and that's where you're an advantage because you know people's culture you know what needs to be broken down and you know how to bring the word of God to bear on those things it means that in a missions context we start where people are which means we often don't just throw the four spiritual laws at them we don't just throw the Romans road at them we need to know what they know if they have no concept of God then I can't start with the four spiritual laws I need to start with who God is If they have no concept of what sin is, then I need to start with the law, right? If they have no idea what it means to come to Christ and that he could be my sacrifice, be the one who stood before me and God and took my punishment, if there's no concept of that, I need to teach the concept so that they understand that. And with our mission, that's why we start in Genesis, not because chronology is somehow some great method, but so they can see the Bible say that, not just hear me say it. They could see it themselves and not just pulling verses out of context. Uh, This is very important. So this is crucial. That was Peter's first commission and ours to be fishers of men. Well, back in our passage, Christ rounds that out with three commands. Three commands that are a bit hard to tell apart, actually. Feed my lambs. Tend my sheep. Feed my sheep. These are three present tense commands, which means they're lifestyle commands. This was what Peter was to be about continuously. Uh, As taken into the future, he needed to be doing these things, taking care of and feeding Christ's sheep. This uh, picture of shepherds is beautiful and rich, and I know you know it, um, but I I want you to think about it in terms of missions with me, please, about what we need to be doing in missions The first aspect of being a shepherd is the recognition that they're not my sheep. They're not my sheep. This is not my church. And I'm not the primary shepherd. This is crucial. The primary shepherd is who? The sheep belong to whom? Him, right? This is so important. Christ is the head of the church. He's the owner of the church. He's the author and perfecter of it. And we are only ever his under-shepherds. And we take great care with the sheep because they're beloved to him. They're beloved to him. We don't lord it over them. Why? Because they have a lord and it's not me. One lord, Jesus Christ. The second part of the, the shepherd is his primary role is to teach, to feed the sheep. And this is... Repeated twice in these commands. Feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. Can you see that? Paul declared himself innocent before the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. Why? Because he had not shrunk back from declaring to them the whole counsel of God. He could say, it's on you now. (laughs) It's on you. 
I've done my job. I declared to you the whole counsel of God. This is what's needed, giving Christ's sheep both the milk and the meat of the word that they need and doing it thoroughly. What about care for the sheep? This is important to love and to know the sheep. But how do we care for them? With the word of God. If you are broken hearted and you've had hard trials in your life, what do you need from your pastor and your elders and your friends who know the word of God? What do you need? You don't need a pep talk. You need to know how God sees it. Why God ordained it. You need to see what God promises for you. So important. If you are stuck in your sin, you don't need a pep talk. That's the worst thing you can get. You need to know how to repent. You need to know that that sin was paid for at the cross. And you need to know how to walk on. These things are the truths of Scripture. So in preaching, feeding the sheep and and caring for the sheep, it's crucial that we use the Word of God to do that. Very important. Very important. And of course, the shepherd carries a stick. Your leaders will correct you and they should. Your leaders will be on the lookout for false teaching and they should. Important that the leaders are shepherds in this way. So in light of that, what should missionary service look like? What should missionary service look like? Or should I say the overall pattern of a missionary team? There are many aspects to missionary service. But if we look at the overall pattern of the missionary team, first of all, we need to ensure that people have the scriptures in their own language. How how can you use the scriptures if they're not there? And this takes many years to bring about an accurate, clear, natural translation so that people can feed themselves, but also so that leaders can pick up those scriptures and use them after you. Very important. Secondly, people need to be taught, preached to, exhorted, comforted from the Word of God. Solid teaching, consistent teaching, the whole counsel of God. The whole counsel of God, and it needs to be clear and break down the vestiges of their old man, of their old worldview, their old thoughts, very much as you see here. And leaders, shepherds, need to be trained to teach, to care, to take up where we've left off, so that more and more we're standing in the background preparing these things for them, preparing Bible lessons, working on translation, so that they step up and rely on the Lord. And teach. This is what missions needs to be. There are many openings for short-term missions. This is important. And people can be a tremendous blessing and have important ministry in God's kingdom through short-term missions. And it's an incredible blessing. I've heard from some of the young people what a blessing it was for them to go to Fiji. Fantastic. That's excellent for us. But let me say this carefully. If that's all people see as missions... Is that making disciples of all nations? Is that reaching the unreached? We need to have a picture where we look at missions and say, these people need to be thoroughly taught, thoroughly shepherded. And those things can't take place in a short period of time. This is important for us to know. Um, Let me get personal with it again. This is where I I get pastors back for saying everybody's a missionary. (laughs) You're quaking, aren't you? You think I'm going to say something heretical. Um, (laughs) No, not at all. How do you carry this out? 
Do you, do you have people in your life that you are a shepherd for? I know you're, a lot of you are parents, right? God has given you people to shepherd, right? And if, have you got enough of God's word in your heart and in your mind? Are you studying it so that you can answer their questions, so that you can shepherd those little sheep that are under your care? By all means, bring them to church. There's a fantastic ministry here of discipling those young people. But you're the one who's been given the responsibility for that. Do you have that? Do you get the chance to share the gospel? Do you take the chance to share the gospel? Do you have it clearly in your mind so that you can do that? Bring people to him. Something else you can do for the flock is using your practical skills for the flock. That's loving them. That's caring for them. Doing the things that you're able to do, you're skillful to do for the flock is a wonderful thing to do. It's not just a, a one-man show, and I know Matt knows that. He will tell you that. <laughs> it's about all of us doing what God has called us to do. And the focus is the flock. The flock of God. Well, the last point I want us to look at today, and this is briefly. I don't need to be brief, but it's briefly. And this is so crucial to us. Peter, and in turn, we ourselves are called first and foremost to be followers of Jesus Christ. Above all else, though none go with me, though it costs me everything, including my life, Jesus Christ is my great shepherd, and I follow his voice, I follow his life, I follow his will for me, period. That's what it means to follow him. I love the language in our passage. Uh, amazing. Let's look in verse 18. This is a gospel call. <laughs> Looks like it. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he would glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. How's that for an altar call? This is, this is important for us. The early church understood that to stretch out one's hands was to be crucified. Peter, you are going to be brutally murdered for me. Now come and follow me. Wow. Wow. This is important. He said truly, truly. He used the future indicative sense, meaning, meaning it will happen. A definite thing. You will die for me. Now follow me. And follow me there is a continuous command. It wasn't just follow me around Galilee, listen to me talk. This is your life, Peter. You are now a follower of mine. And you are to do that continuously. That is who you are. That is how you are to see yourself as a follower of Jesus Christ. And that was his life until he would, do you love the language, glorify God by dying for Christ. Glorify God by dying for Christ. This is our call too, right? If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross 
and follow me. For whatever time we have left on earth, we are followers of Jesus Christ. Do you love his voice? Do you love it? Do you seek his will for your life? His direction for you? Do you welcome his work on your character? Will you lay down your life for him? Your preferences for him? Your everything for him? This is important. You think of all the things that we follow. We can follow a team, but teams let us down. We can follow a political party, but they let us down. We can look for our own comfort, and that lets us down. Everything in this earth lets us down. Nothing of this earth is worth our worship but Jesus Christ. Nothing. Nothing in this earth is worth our trust, worthy of our trust, outside of Jesus Christ. Nothing compares to him as a worthy, wise, glorious, loving, and merciful Lord. Follow him. Follow him. If you're looking at yourself now and you're saying, oh, I don't think I'm following him. If you have never put your trust in Jesus Christ personally, there is a way for you. If you are willing to put your trust in him, your sins will be wiped away. And then you follow him if you're willing to come to him. If you're a Christian and you look at your life as I often do and go, what am I doing? Do you know that there is grace for you? His grace is what? Sufficient for you. Sufficient for you. Not just to forgive your sins, and that's beautiful, but to empower you for ministry. It's God's grace that does that. Turn to him in repentance and he will not let you go. Nothing can steal your salvation. Nothing and no one. You heard that last week, right? Read it again. Come to him. We serve a forgiving saviour. There's a lovely little description further down our passage where Peter looks back. You can just picture Peter, right? Jesus has said, you're going to be murdered for me, Peter. And John's behind them. And Peter's like, what about him? (laughs) This is so instructive for us. Jesus' answer, really good for our hearts. If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. And that's explicit the you there. You follow me. It's none of your business, Peter. None of your business. John wasn't martyred. He wasn't martyred. He certainly suffered for the Lord. But whatever plans Jesus had for John were not Peter's concern. My dear friend, if you are following Christ and you are walking with him and you bumble but your heart is open to his leading in your life, And his will for you. Don't be guilt-tripped by a mission sermon. Don't be guilt-tripped by someone else's life. By all means, be, be challenged by someone else's life. But if you are following Christ, that's all he asks of you. This is so important for you to know. How about if there are Marthas here? Marthas. Maybe you're working your heart out and it drives you nuts that other people aren't doing the same thing. That's Martha. (laughs) 
What did Jesus think of Martha's idea? I'd say it's probably the same thing he thinks of that in your life. What is that to you? You follow me. You follow me. Well, we've looked at the fact we need to realize our frailty, and our frailty is a fact. We need to see that. We've realized that we need to truly feed the sheep, and that's what we're all about, and we need to be about. I just want to leave you with this one challenge and one question. Are you following Jesus Christ? Are you following him? Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, you are the only worthy one, worthy of our time and our lives and our everything. And Father, we seek to follow you. Please help us. Help us that we may snap out of complacency, if that's the case, that we will not allow our hope to be stolen by looking at the world around us, but that we will have our hope in your power and in your glory. Father, we long to be used in your kingdom so that you would be glorified throughout this earth and in this nation. Dear God, help us to have hope as we sit with our friends in our workplaces and our schools, wherever we are, that we may have the courage to step out in faith and share your gospel by your strength, not by our own. Help us to be clear, Lord. Help us to be passionate. And dear God, Help us to love your church, love your flock, love your people. Father, we're nothing without you, and yet we can be strong with you. And Father, we pray that you'll